1: Everyone and Welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Mark Brody, the author of Making Monte Carlo, a History of Speculation and Spectacle, and the book was published by Simon & Schuster in 2016. Hi there, Mark.
0: Hi, how's it going?
1: Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. It's a pleasure. Would you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on Monte Carlo?
0: Yeah, it started in the um, first years of graduate school when I was doing the history uh, a PhD in history and focused on modern France. And I was reading Walter Benjamin um, the Arcades project and he has these you know, everything he writes is so wonderful, but he has this bit about gambling. And I thought, now that that's fascinating. I wonder if that might be a project, you know, to actually write about the history of gambling which then sort of led me to casinos themselves mm-hmm. and i there's all this wonderful um literature especially if you're a 19th century historian on the department store and these these public places and i thought well maybe there's room for the casino in that discussion
1: mm-hmm.
0: and kind of bouncing around looking at paris and then i realized of course there's this huge place right next to france and so french in culture and language um which is monaco of course um and, um, you know, here I am nearly a decade later, and I would say most days I have been thinking, reading, or writing about this uh, place half the size of Central Park. And it's it's odd how that happens, but I guess that's, these are how these projects uh, work. You know, you, you have a little spark and then a decade goes by.
1: Yeah, well, I'm so glad it, it happened. <laughs> um, I wonder okay. if before we get into it, uh, you might just situate, Monte Carlo for us a bit sort of geographically perhaps give us a really micro sketch of Monaco before the period covered in the book so before the 19th century when you really get started
0: sure as I said you know it's this tiny little place um wedged it actually has French territory all around it um on all three sides in the Mediterranean on on the south side um and it's been ruled by the Grimaldi family this dynasty for uh you know Basically eight centuries with with small breaks during the revolutionary uh, French Revolution, and um, so really the longest reigning dynasty in Europe, and and of course still reigned by uh, ruled by a prince, which is so bizarre. And that was kind of what led me to toward Monaco itself was this question of well, why didn't it just get you know annexed, and and why didn't it um, join into these larger nations like all these other little city states and, and smaller territories. Mm-hmm. And I thought there was a really interesting history of nationhood there, and it's it's a really poor place for most of its most of its history, um, until the 19th century. Um, only a few hundred people living there; they're mostly fishermen and 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 shepherds, and uh, a few citrus trees they have. And um, it's it's really that being on the edge of bankruptcy um, that prompts them to go towards gambling. They legalized gambling in 1855, and that's really where. Uh, the book begins and where the history of of modern modern Monaco begins as well.
1: So Mark, I just want to ask you a couple of sort of nuts and bolts questions about the sources that you use to access the history that you explore in the book and the structure of the book. I mean, it's an incredibly fascinating read. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about it is that it's written in these short chapters. So could you talk a little bit about your sources and your decisions around how you put the book together and, and structured it?
0: Yeah, my main source was actually the casino itself. The um, There's a company called the Société des Bains de Mer, uh, the sort of sea bathing society, which is the, the, the name of the company that owns the casino, but also owns uh, pretty much, well, I, w- I won't say all of Monaco, but s- but a lot of the important places in Monaco, a lot of the important um, restaurants, hotels, businesses, mm-hmm. and of course the casino, which is this huge um, source of revenue, all owned by this uh, company, the SBM and they have uh, a tiny little archive. And so I went there and uh, returned back over a few years and really looked at everything they had. Um, and that was, of course, you know, some of the drier stuff, memos, accounting records. Um, but then, you know, a lot of letters back and forth between management and uh, employees, um, all of their advertising, all of their internal photography, Um you know, how much they had been paying people like publicists that really helped. Um, it was a, it was an odd experience because I don't quite know that anybody had really been there to, uh, to write a book. And I don't know that they really knew if I was a friend or an enemy or what. Mm -hmm. Um, it was, you know, it became clear the sort of what they were willing to show me once I got to 1939. Um, then, then the door closed anything having to do with the second world war, uh, I was not allowed to to look at and subsequently just decided not to write about that in the book, although, you know, kind of off the record. I guess we're on the record, but not in print. Um, you know, I think the company and the principality was badly compromised during the um, occupation by German and Italian powers and 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 a, and a sense of collusion, especially with their banking. But that's, I guess, off to the side of your question. So that was the main source was this wonderful casino archive. Yeah. And then um I went next door to Nice, spent a lot of time in Nice um, at the, the kind of municipal archives there because they're watching Monaco very closely. Okay. They're watching the border, who's going back and forth, people that have been expelled. So police uh, records there, a lot of the local press. And um, the third main source was uh, the National Library uh, in Paris. Um, they have a lot of great stuff about Monte Carlo. So people in the kind of glory years of of the casino i'm talking late 19th century and early 20th century writing about it and what are they saying um and that to me was actually some of the most fascinating research maybe we can talk about that a little bit more um i can keep going and i could have kept going with the with the research which was of course the whole point about what i'm trying to say about this place is it's so incredibly international and cosmopolitan Mm -hmm. and so sources are coming out from all over the place so just you know one last point i'll just make is that you know i happen to be in los angeles doing the phd and so there's the Margaret herrick uh library there the film the academy of motion arts and sciences so you know they've got filming done along the riviera and in monaco so those kinds of things you know it, it goes all over
1: so you were talking about how uh you you weren't sure if there are other people who access these archives the sbm archive anyway for uh for the purposes of writing a book. What was this existing state of scholarship on Monte Carlo and Monaco when you began this project? And do you think of yourself as part of a broader conversation about the place? Um, I have no idea what the historiography of this place is.
0: Yeah, there wasn't a whole heck of a lot of uh, historiography about this place. It was more, uh, so, you know, I was looking more at um, histories of gambling. I think was where I really mm-hmm. started. And then, as I said, those those histories of um, other public places, public private places, uh, department stores, you know, uh, expositions, all that kind of stuff is what, what I was reading. But in terms of other uh, books about Monaco, I didn't really have that much of a guideline, which was, of course, difficult, but but also really exciting because mm-hmm. I just felt like it was all sort of breaking new ground.
1: In the preface to the book, Mark, you you have this great moment, I think it's towards the end of the preface, where you say, and I'm quoting you, any accurate history of Monte Carlo must also include a history of the inaccuracies spun about Monte Carlo. And when you were talking about your sources, you kind of pointed to this a little bit. Could you say a little bit more about what what you mean by that?
0: Yeah, that's really the heart of the book. And I think the heart of the history of this place is that it's a kind of As I said, there's a territory, there's a small piece of land, um, but nothing there in terms of the business itself when I start the book and when I start this history in the mid-19th century. And it's all about the idea, and it's all about the message and publicizing this thing which doesn't yet exist. And the thing that doesn't yet exist is the casino resort. Um, And that's really what I'm trying to draw out is this idea that I think in Monte Carlo, you see the early stages of businesses that can be founded on an idea, founded on um, kind of speculative um, energy. And so it's really, you know, we take this for granted now. If you look at a place like Vegas or Macau or Atlantic City, these highly themed spaces, I think in Monaco, that's where this all starts. Mm -hmm. Um, So it, it begins with this founder, Francois Blanc, who takes this empty space and not only you know, sells it as just a casino, but as so much more than just gambling. It's actually going to be about a place where um, you can escape the control of your home nation because this is a place where gambling is legal when it's uh, banned across much of Europe. And that, that, that escape is actually going to be seen as a glamorous act. Mm-hmm. You're going to be among other people who are free, either because they're wealthy enough or they're daring enough or whatever, to come to this place, uh, it's not easy to get to. And there you are among kind of equals, uh, you know, elites, for lack of a better term, at least in the early stages.
1: So I just want to follow up on some of what you just said. The book begins with this fascinating story of the, these brothers, François and Louis, who are also twins. Can you give us a short version of their story, how they end up in Monte Carlo? And then maybe I'll ask you about the, the history of gambling to, to follow up on that.
0: Yeah, these these are twins who are born into uh, humble circumstances in the in the provinces, in the French provinces. Their their father, um, who is a kind of minor official, dies before they're born, and um, they they leave the sort of the farm, the family farm, and they go and make their way as professional gamblers and essentially uh, card sharps. You know, these are people who are are either rigging car uh, card games or can calculate. Um, Probability in a time when that's a, a relatively new concept and they, and they sort of they really capitalize on that and um, Francois who becomes the founder of Monte Carlo is the, is the shooter of the two and he gets he gets to Paris and the Palais Royal and meets the sort of reigning uh, gambling empresario there. Uh, and this is in the 1830s when gambling is still legal in France, mm-hmm. and gets gets groomed t- and, uh, to to run his own um, enfer you know, one of these hells, as they call it, the the small little gambling houses along the Palais Royal there, in the arcades, um, and he of course learns, you know, this is the truism of gambling that the best way to win at gambling is to own a casino. Mm-hmm. That of course is the guaranteed odd, uh, you know, you will always win. But what he does is he goes one step further than the person who trained him and sees that um, the, the future of gambling is really going to be in in what what is now called industrial gambling. Before he comes along, most of the games are these one-to-one adversarial matches where um, people will gamble head-to-head and the house will take just a little percentage or a little commission for hosting the game. And Blanc sees that actually, uh, you know, as... Gambling becomes more of a mass distraction. Um, people are going to want to play for smaller stakes against the house and for longer periods of time, and that's the kind of games we know now—roulette, uh, you know, these these things where you put you can put maybe a few dollars down and you might get a big win, but it's more about entertainment or whatever. Um, he sees that that's the future, and so he's kind of the first one who really invests in um, a whole bunch of roulette tables. Um, a whole level of management of security, this idea that you're going to get a square game that sort of originates with him, that this is, this is more run like a real big business. Mm -hmm. Um, that's part of it. And just, just to end with his second contribution is, as I said, this idea that it always has to be, the gambling space always has to be about more than gambling itself. So he starts in Monte Carlo offering, um, you know, musical, um, performances, opera, ballet all of these things to kind of uh go along with the gambling and then people start to think about the experience as as more of a as i said a, a, a night of entertainment and not just a kind of based uh financial transaction which is really what gambling is of course
1: so mark you draw attention to this 1838 law that abolishes all public gambling in france can you situate the emergence of a gambling industry site in Monte Carlo in relationship to the law in France, but then also maybe a little bit throughout Europe in this period?
0: Yeah. So w- when that law gets passed, the the gambling en- entrepreneurs and empresarios in Paris go to the Rhine usually, usually in these German territories, and that becomes the, the hotspot for spa gambling. Um, and again, this is still, and I'm talking about the late 1830s, early 1840s this is still very small scale and this is still an uh, primarily an aristocratic pastime and blanc is part of that he sets up at a little place called bad homburg um and has his own little spa casino and he learns something there and what he learns is that gambling is a kind of performance the games going on there among this aristocratic elite it's interesting the the gain of money is not really the primary concern. Strangely enough, it's more about this idea of can you bear your losses mm. or your wins with a sort of stoic detachment? Because that's, of course, what it means to be patrician or noble or what have you. Money doesn't really matter to you. It's more this: can you take a risk? Can you put yourself on the line and bear the the victory or the defeat uh, in a passive way? Much like you know one would have proven one's noble bearing on the battlefield, mm-hmm. and so that's kind of 1830s 1840s running alongside that as i said is this tiny little place in monaco where the the noble family is um the dynasty is near bankrupt and they see what's going on in these little german states and they say well we can do that too so they legalize gambling and the risk of course is that they're thumbing their noses at uh france which is right next door and won't france just annex them uh if they get too upset about this change, you know this this rejection of of the their own laws, mm. and so they they try to play it off as though what they're really doing is opening a spa resort, and it just so happens to uh, have gambling as its primary funding source. So they sell Monaco and this town of Monte Carlo as a spa, as a health spa, mm. and um, they bring in Blanc, who, as I said, was running one of these Ryan casinos, to come and be the sort of person who will set this up. And what Blanc does is he takes that spa performative side of gambling, this idea of it's an elite pastime. That's all about performance. And he translates that into a major industry, but precisely to bring in a mass audience. So it's a kind of elite culture. The idea that, and the casinos look like these, the casino in in Monte Carlo looks like this old fashioned spa casino, Um, And it's supposed to be this rarefied place. But of course, the whole point is to bring in thousands and tens of thousands and, and eventually hundreds of thousands of people through the doors each year.
1: I was really fascinated reading the book by the kind of range of class. Uh, well, the range of classes that participate in Monte Carlo, but also the range of kind of class uh, associations and representations of Monte Carlo. So there's this kind of aristocratic culture. But then this is also, you know, a world of business and a kind of rationality attached to gambling. Could you talk a little bit about that mix of a kind of aristocratic flavor to the place and to the practices in that place. But then also this kind of 19th century uh, business work ethic that's also happening alongside this.
0: Yeah. And that's where I think the history of the Grimaldi dynasty is, is such a bizarre little addition to, to the history of, of um, nobility and aristocracy and royalty in the modern period is yes, we have these, these certain families that have, are still incredibly wealthy or powerful today um, who are royal. But the, those are people who sort of survived, let's say, um, the revolutions and hung on to their land and their wealth that they'd attained over centuries. Whereas the Grimaldi, are their fortune is made precisely in the mid-19th and earlier 20th century, and precisely because, unlike so many of their peers, they're willing to ally with um, business and with mm. the bourgeoisie, they see that right from the beginning. Um, there's no taint in 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 okay. doing business. This is how they're going to actually thrive, and so and that that mix of uh, a royal, noble, aristocratic culture and a very um, you know, I would say uh, cynical uh, business ethic is at the very high levels of who's running the show i mean it's a total collusion between the royal family and the casino but also it trickles down i think to the casino itself and to the resort itself it is this place where anyone can go so long as uh one has the power and the wealth to do so at least in the early era and then that feeling that culture uh kind of survives and gets distilled to the masses as i said it's, it's this place where you can go to feel as though you are somehow elite and i think the point there what i'm trying to say about nations and and, and the history of nations in the 19th and 20th centuries is that we have to look at these little tiny places because they're not just weird outliers they're actually totally fundamental to the way that money and power operate in our own uh era which is we talk about Things like communication networks and rail networks, transportation, all that stuff, uh, building imagined communities, of course, building these big nations, these big powers. Mm -hmm. But we also have to remember that those same technologies allow for individuals to escape state controls in new ways. Mm -hmm. And that's precisely why Monaco thrives. It's this place where you can go and do things that you wouldn't necessarily do at home. And it doesn't really matter where you're from. It matters only that you are uh, wealthy, and that you are mobile, and so power doesn't always reside in big places, right? It it, it moves and it kind of find, pops up in these little nodes uh, that are truly global. I think.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you think of the bookmark as a as a contribution to well to the history of business, to the history of capitalism, labor? globalization, those kinds of things as a kind of early history of some of these themes and issues that we speak about a lot in the contemporary
0: moment? My background is really, and my and my interests are really in visual culture and the history of of um, all sorts of different uh, technologies of media. Mm-hmm. And so that was really where I was trying to start with, was this idea of there's all this, this efflorescence of images about Monte Carlo and created in Monte Carlo, all the posters, the way the casino looks. Um, the films, all those things are what drew me to it. So I really saw it as a cultural history and primarily a cultural history focused on the visual. It soon sort of morphed into a, a social uh, and cultural history, but primarily, as you said, a business history. It is the history of this business. Mm-hmm. But, but of course, those two stories are totally linked. And that's what's so, I think, um, important about this story is it's 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 a reminder that you know visual culture and 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 business are in a sense two sides of the same coin in certain realms it's a business that thrives on the visual and is only able to exist because of the power of mass media and the ways that images start to move in new ways in the 19th and 20th century you just can't have this place without the sort of um you know, I start with the posters. They have the posters before the place is even built. Mm-hmm. That to me is the quintessential story of uh, one of the, you know, not the, but it's a big story of capitalism in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. That the image itself is something you can sell before the real thing. I don't think you can do that before beforehand.
1: So, this you know, the subtitle of the book is A History of Speculation and Spectacle. And we've sort of moved into this territory of thinking about the relationship between the two. Um, you situate the history of Monte Carlo in relationship to the history of mass culture and spectacle and the period that you're covering and advertising and this visual culture that, that you've just been talking about. Do you think that Monte Carlo affects that broader uh, history of visual culture? Like, so it draws on what's available out there in the 19th century in terms of technologies and modes of representation and all of that. But do you think that Monte Carlo changes that field as well?
0: That's a tough question to answer because, of course, you know, I'm really, I can focus on what it draws on and what, and what, where it's situated in the history. The after effects are are harder to see. Mm -hmm. I do, I do think that it is a place we can look to as an early example, shall we say, of an elite culture that is translated into something that can be for mass consumption. And that, that I think lingers on in, in so many different ways. You know, I think of Ralph Lauren, for instance, just the certain fashion, um, brands, the idea that you too can own a ranch in Texas and vacation in in Hyannisport. And all you need to do is buy the shirt. Is there a smoking gun link between Monaco and Ralph Lauren? No, but I think that it's, it's, it, it points to this early stage of the idea that rarefied and, and elite, Practices don't necessarily have to belong solely to members of that
1: class. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of ashamed to admit this, but <laughs> as I was reading the book, at a couple of moments, I thought about, uh, you know, Monaco uh, and Monte Carlo feature in Gossip Girl, mm-hmm. and and I mean, I think of that show as such a recent like iteration of a certain type of, you know, luxury desire aspiration whatever and of course this the grimaldi family <laughs> is featured in that show um in a in a pretty central way to one of a couple of the seasons or something and um and i was thinking about that the kind of persistence of this idea of uh of the family and that culture and that space as as uh, epitomizing you know well especially like what luxury culture in the united states aspires to this fantasy of of um of monte carlo and,
0: and monaco anyway <laughs> yeah no no i think i think the founder of, of monte carlo would have loved that i mean that was the whole point point. and here's this this visual medium that is trading on this idea and this fantasy and that it's american i think is is important too you know the, the, when i speak about the book i always get asked about james bond that's yeah. always one of the things that people ask well what about james bond and monte carlo and the weird thing is in the Ian Fleming novels, James Bond never goes to Monte Carlo. He never mentions Monaco. There's, there's a place called Royale Les Eaux, which um, Fleming invents and sets in northern France. I think he bases it on Deauville. That's where Casino Royale takes place and where these famous gambling scenes take place. Um, and yet, it just seems natural that somebody like James Bond, who is this person of a gentlemanly bearing and yet does not have a gentlemanly upbringing— um, and is kind of just a, a working Joe in a sense. I mean, he's just a highly trained working Joe, um, should be in Monte Carlo. It's a place where somebody like him belongs. And so once you have the films come along, the cinematic imagination just puts him in Monaco. He just has to be there. And so once he gets to film, then the Bond character does go to Monaco, although in the books themselves, uh, he does not. And I think that tells the story of, of the power of, of, of this image. Um, And that's the spectacle side of the story.
1: Mm -hmm. So we've talked about the kind of high end side of capitalism and the question of aristocracy and this luxury, these luxury associations with, with uh, Monaco and with Monte Carlo. But this, the book is also engaged uh, and raises issues of the the labor that underlies all of this. Um, And I guess I was, I was surprised, you know, when you, you mentioned this earlier, that uh, to talk about Monaco as a sort of relatively impoverished place, or to think about the relationship between this luxury culture and the rest of the population. Um, so maybe just to ask, what's the the labor dimension of the story?
0: Great, I'm I'm glad you asked that because I think you can get carried away in the glitz and the glitter, and uh, of course there is a human cost to all of this. Mm-hmm. And the founders uh, of the, the and the early managers of the casino are are espousing the same strategy as they are with their clientele when it comes to their workers anybody can come work in monaco uh, in service of the casino if they have the skills to do so it doesn't matter where they're from uh what side of uh recent wars they might have fought on for instance after the first world war just just come and, and and work and not many questions are asked and that raises a lot of um tensions with the local population which is at this point uh, you know in throughout most of the history a few thousand people who want jobs and um are willing to kind of turn their their territory over to gambling precisely because they think it will uh, guarantee them jobs and there's there's an ongoing tension between local workers and outside workers and a, a fairly repressive management it all bubbles up into this fairly large worker uprising just on the eve of the first uh Monaco Grand Prix in 1929.
1: So, Mark, I'm just wondering what some of the key tensions and conflicts might have been that arose after the casino, the first casino opened. So, you know, there's the first casino opens in, what is it, 1858? Uh,
0: 1856. 1856.
1: Um, So the first casino opens in 1856 uh, and then, of course, there are subsequent casinos, so competition between sites, and then between the state, perhaps tensions between the state and the gambling interests and business interests. So how did gambling fit or not within the broader social and economic landscape of Monaco, and what were some of the conflicts uh, that arose uh, after the first casino opens?
0: Yeah, like I said, they're always afraid, the people in Monaco are always afraid of what People outside in more powerful nations are going to think about the fact that they're going alone in this whole uh, legalization of gambling. And so there is an ongoing tension of, um, can we do this without upsetting our neighbors? And it turns out, well, maybe um, if you look at the French example, it's okay to have this little safety valve, if you will, at the bottom uh, east end of the country where people can go and uh, and gamble and indulge in um, all sorts of activities that they might not do at home, and that maybe it's okay to have this place in a, in, a, in a somewhat separate area that has this border between the two. The locals are willing to go along with it so long as things are going well financially. The people of Monaco are actually banned from entering the casino to gamble. They can only go in there to work. Um, and so it really is this place where the whole territory is turned over to outsiders. The money, the, the people who, who found the place and fund it are outside investors for the most part. Um, workers mostly come from the outside, and of course all the profits are coming from the outside. So it's a country whose infrastructure is built up completely uh, by foreigners. And I call it a cosmopolitan company town because it has all the markings of a company town. There's just this tiny little kind of cabal, if you will, of, of people who are running the show – and yet it's a company town, and it has this, this, this one industry, which is gambling, and yet it's a company company town that is founded on the very idea of cosmopolitanism, of being open, of anybody can come here and it's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a, that's a sort of new way of thinking about cosmopolitanism, is that it's not, it's not somebody proposing that we think like global citizens for any uh, wonderful... Uh, political or social benefit it's precisely deploying that idea for uh, a a very tight and internalized um, profit you know so here's this this very narrow group saying oh let's be cosmopolitan and um, that's going to help our own our own goals our own local goals
1: so mark this is also kind of a history of uh, the development of transportation in Europe at this time and the history of travel and tourism, uh, not just within Europe but beyond uh, Europe's borders. Could you say a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, and that's actually what's come out of the book is I've I've become more and more fascinated by that history or the histories of travel and tourism, and that's really where a lot of my teaching at at Stanford now has been Hmm. on these on these histories. I, I teach a course called Speed and Power, for instance, which is all about the history of of transportation and transportation technologies and travel and tourism. And I think that, again, I said, well, Monaco can't really exist or thrive without the age of uh, the mass image. It's also the same thing when it comes to mass transportation. Uh, We mentioned that the casino, you know, the legalization of gambling is 1855. They only start to really turn a profit in 1868, which happens to be uh, the same year that the railway is connected to Monaco. It's also the same year that the railway connects to Lourdes. And so there's this kind of interesting parallel of these two Southern uh, pil- pilgrimage sites, if you will. Um, and, you know, the the rap at the time, what the French press are saying is that uh, Blanc, the 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 guy who's running the show in, in Monte Carlo, has paid off the PLM to get, um, to get the line down to the South. And certainly um, the archives will bear out that there's a very tight relationship between French uh, rail officials and and uh, the SBM. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, it's this idea of only – it's a place that can only thrive through people coming from the outside and people who know that they will only be there temporarily and so can act and uh, and consume – and perform in ways that they wouldn't within their home communities. And that's where the um, the French, the, the, the Parisian part of my research really helped, because then I got a whole bunch of uh, polemicists and journalists and novelists writing about Monte Carlo as this place that is dangerous because it rejects the bonds of community. It rejects the bonds of family. It rejects uh, the republic, in a sense. And so you have all of these stories of, uh, fallen women or men who are abandoning their families or uh, children who have, you know, prodigal sons and daughters who uh, fall into ruin and eventually suicide uh, there are the tons and tons of suicide stories, mm-hmm. uh, both both presented as fact and fiction. People have come to the casino and they they, they forget their duty. They forget their ties to home. Uh, they forget their ties to family. And uh, and, and that ends in death.
1: Well, what you're just talking about now and your reference to the world just a couple of moments ago makes me want to ask about the role of religion and all of this in this period, the way that gambling or the history of gambling plays a role or not in the in the kind of standoff or, um, uh, you know, opposition between secularism and the sacred in this period. Are, are those things connected?
0: You know, there's there's not an awful lot of of religion in the book and i'm wondering if that is a weakness because it it is and that is where a lot of the gambling uh literature that i was reading Mm -hmm. has been so interesting is is positing the belief in luck and the belief in chance Mm -hmm. as this sort of secular way of understanding the world and i guess i didn't really do that in, in in my own book because i thought that had been rather well covered um there are the sort of obvious points of that you know you have a lot of um people speaking from uh the pulpit denouncing the sins of of gambling i don't think that's exclusive to monaco but again to 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 point back to the earlier answer i gave about um these suicide stories a lot of that religious rhetoric or that sort of moralist rhetoric is tied to the idea of family Mm -hmm. that this is a place that is a particular kind of sinfulness which is the sinfulness of of Self-interest of, mm-hmm. of being obsessed with self. Yes, it's tied to money, of course, but it's more about this this sense that this is a place where you've abandoned uh, tradition, you've abandoned uh, family.
1: It's interesting that because at the same time this is a history of uh, of families of the Grimaldi family and also of the family that that is behind the S.B.M. And so I, I'm just curious about how you went about. In doing the research for the book and writing it how you went about balancing the the story of the the bigger implications and sort of social landscape that you're engaged with here and then the you know detailed story of this family you know francois and then his wives and his children and how that dynasty unfolds over the period that you cover in the book
0: precisely i had these two families to deal with which were the grimaldi family And the Blanc family, who, as we've talked about, founded and then uh, in subsequent generations kept managing the the casino. And it's the balance of power between the two. Um, I tended toward the latter in in the actual narrative. And that is, for one reason, um, my archives are chiefly focused on the casino itself. The Grimaldi, the 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 palace has su- significant archives. I was not allowed to see them. They wanted to vet me quite fully and, and actually know all about my project before I could could see anything. And I wasn't really willing to have that uh, interaction with them. And so was subsequently sort of told, you, you know, I was not not entirely welcome there. Um, mm-hmm. the, and, and and so that. Is part of the reason why I focused, I think, on the business, but also I think it's actually the more interesting story. Uh, luckily enough, uh, the Grimaldi stuff tends to be very Vanity Fair, which is hey, don't get me wrong, I like Vanity <laughs> Fair, but it's it's kind of been done. We know that story of that family and the, and the sadness that they've that they've had. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more, I think, the balance between these two is that you would think that this royalty would be the they would be the people in charge, and it turns out no, it's actually these very. Uh, private family of of entrepreneurs who for the most part actually live in france they don't spend a lot of time in in monaco Hmm. um and you know seeing how how the how the business survives down through the generations allowed me to track the change over time and that was what was so fascinating The, the the book is split into two halves the first half is this founding and a lot of the things that we've talked about in the in the late nineteenth century, the second half is a sort of rebirth because what happens with the First World War is that whole aristocratic style just falls out of favor, right? Of course, you have the the, fa- the very fact that a lot of the the wealthiest gamblers are dead, or or um, you know their descendants, are, the wealth is gone, and also just the very idea of, the, of that older. Victorian uh, style is, is no longer fashionable al- among the people who want to go to places like Monaco. And so that is where you see there become there's a power struggle and the Blanc family actually loses. And you have a whole new generation of managers who are now looking toward uh, increasingly America for, for new styles, new ideas. And so we get into the sort of jazz age, Monte Carlo, which is that second second half. Again, totally tied to image and spectacle but a different kind now very much forward looking highly modern you know and and a lot of it is, is tied to avant-garde um
1: art and culture yeah i just wanted to ask you mark about some of the other cultural phenomena that are kind of swirling around in the book so you know the entertainments that are brought in and cultivated and nurtured in, uh, in Monte Carlo, the way in which the book is also kind of a history of like food and drink and the emergence of certain types of, uh, ideas about celebrity, uh, in, in this context from, you know, the late 19th century through the the first decades of the, the 20th century. So as a cultural historian, uh, you know, what is the specificity of Monte Carlo as a space in which, culture uh this late 19th early 20th century culture is uh is proliferating in various forms
0: yeah there, there are two stories there so one is this idea that the the casino experience has to be paired with an entertainment experience mm-hmm. um and that it has to be themed okay. okay that's blanc's invention and that's his contribution to to the history of gambling um you have to pass through the casino to get to the free Opera, you know, shows at the Garnier designed, um, op- opera, which is just like the Opera de Paris, but actually connected to the casino and under the same roof of the Monte Carlo Casino. Um, this fascinating little architectural gem that they have there. So that's the one story. Okay. Entertainment and gambling paired. Fine. The other story is well, what kinds of cultural. Products are they are they favoring in Monte Carlo because it could really have been anything, mm-hmm. and thus it really could have been anything in the subsequent iterations in places like Vegas, Macau. Why do they look the way they do? Mm-hmm. Well, there's there's a couple of things. First is this highly themed, exoticized um, space. Right, they're pointing away from the me- metropolises of to the north and really looking south. So they import palm trees um a lot of the architecture is is highly sort of uh orientalist shall we say uh it's very much about the mediterranean space it's an exotic space right Mm -hmm. you may have you may have come down on the train from paris or from saint petersburg or from london once you get here you you might as well be in another world Mm uh so and i think we see that again that that casino resorts tend to have that sort of palm tree aesthetic shall we say um As has been noted, the irony of the Côte d'Azur, of the French Riviera, is that the ultimate, and this is Ken Silver, uh, our historian, has said this, you know, the whole icon, the ideal icon of luxury for the Côte d'Azur is the palm tree, and it is imported. You know, it's an invention. It doesn't, it's not natural to the region. It's just like the coast itself as this playground has been invented. So that's the the architectural and and the look. But then also, as I said, what kinds of things are they funding? And I found, and this was a a, a kind of nice uh, discovery in the archives, is they kept funding again and again anything that had to do with speed and with movement. And that's why, and that starts with um, certain, uh, even ballets that they're funding. Uh, The Ballet Russe is headquartered for a lot of the year in Monaco in the the 1920s. It's actually one of its um, kind of firmest and most uh, financially lucrative bases is to be in the pay of the SBM Mm -hmm. and they do a lot of, they debut a lot of their performances down there uh, and then kind of take them on the road to Paris and London. And so there's a lot of dance, a lot of movement, but also of course the um, variety of boat races, jet races uh, or airplane displays. um, And of course the Monaco grand prix and earlier iterations of, of these auto rallies. And I say, well, that's not coincidental. They are funding anything that has to do with movement because that's so central to who they are and how they became successful. They could only have become successful with all of these uh, transportation networks. And it's also about the very ethos of what it means to be in Monaco, is you are somebody who is on the move, who has no roots, who has no connections, and that is not a shameful thing, that is a wonderful thing. That is a glamorous thing, and that is a representative of wealth and power. And so they, they champion again and again anything that has to do with, if it moves, it gets funded.
1: What's the role of gender in this history, Mark? I mean, I'm thinking of everything from the roles that women play in the history to, you know, the ways in which gambling as an activity is or isn't gendered. Yeah.
0: So the the media stuff I saw were were in the lists of who was admitted to the casino, and uh, you know these those tended to be um, reports by sort of internal security people who are writing to the managers. Here are the notable people we saw this week. So that's not a, a huge cross-section, right? These are more of the people that would have made some um, impact, either because they were well-known or because they um, caused some sort of a stir. Mm-hmm. Um, but drawing out of that in those 1870s and 1880s and 1890s, I was struck by seeing that really um, it's it's fairly even along gender lines. And so, and from some of the literature, some of the reportage, um, I was also sort of able to draw out this idea, the sense that at the table, there was a kind of egalitarian, let's say, makeup of who was at the table along class lines, along nationality, and along gender lines. It really was, if you have the money, put it on the table, and your money is as good as anyone else's. You know, whether that was somehow politically liberating or hopeful, I, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical about that, but at least within the casino setting, there is this idea that, um, it doesn't, you know, man, woman, rich, poor, uh, if you have the money, put it down. And if you win, you win. If you lose, you lose. And, and, and that, you know, that, uh, is a temporary kind of suspension of maybe normal relations. So that was okay. Fine. Looking at the casino itself, the workers, most of the jobs were held by men. Um, women were sort of in menial positions, coat check, uh, cleaning. So that was not uh, in any way. You know, I didn't see any kind of equality along gender lines in in the distribution of employment. And then, you know, the great one of the great things that I had been looking forward to was learning about Marie Blanc, who was the widow of Francois Blanc, the founder, mm-hmm. and who. According to all the sources I'd seen coming out of Monaco, then ran the casino after his death, and is and there's you know somebody wrote a novel about her and she's this fascinating character. Unfortunately, when I looked at the archives, that story was not borne out. Hmm. It actually looks like she was pretty much um, a silent sort of stockholder, and that there's that that um, Blanc's personal secretary rose in power and sort of ran the show in her name. Um, which I was disappointed in, in, in seeing because I, I was really interested in that story and and learning about that era, but it didn't actually um, lead me to to what I wanted to see. I was hoping to see. So th- that's the kind of. Sorry, go ahead.
1: No, I was just going to say it's kind of a curious thing that anyone would be particularly invested in creating that mythology. It's interesting.
0: Yeah, I think that there was this there was this fantasy that she was um, had an enormous amount of of power and influence in the in the principality. And that I think she did financially, but but it does not seem that she was involved in the day to day operations of the casino.
1: Another woman that you talk about is Elsa Maxwell, um, this American press agent publicist, uh, you know, during this sort of heyday of Monte Carlo in the in the in the 20s. Could you tell us a little bit about her?
0: Yeah, and I'm glad you asked, because that's really what I was hoping uh, I wanted to talk about eventually, because she is uh, a thrilling uh, personality and and certainly uh, could merit her own um, her own book. Um, she is brought in in 19 in, in the mid 1920s to revitalize Mont- Monte Carlo, the resort, uh, the prince, the, the reigning prince at the time actually brings her and seeks her advice. As you said, um, she was a, a, a A PR person, a society hostess, um, somebody who could bridge the uh, or or make connections between, you know, uh, people with a lot of money and people with a lot of talent. That's what she's good at. So she's she pops up in Venice, um, helps to revitalize or create a summer season there and uh, is seen, you know, uh, uh, organizes parties with people like Cole Porter and. Um, is is credited, for instance, with inventing the treasure hunt. You know, she she has all of these great, um, kind of because of her background as uh, in the press, the, these kinds of attention grabbing uh, stunts, publicity stunts. Huh. Um, but she's a very shrewd, um, a very shrewd uh, businesswoman, and sees precisely what people are missing in Monte Carlo, which is that they have this ocean and they have um, this weather. And they're not capitalizing on it in the right way. Hmm. Before the 1920s, nobody is going to the to the Riviera or the Cote d'Azur in summer. It's preci- it, it, it's it's almost exclusively a winter resort. You go there to escape cold winters in Russia or wherever, and you take the air and you take the waters in the winter, and then you go home. It's dead in the summer, and Maxwell sees this is the opportunity that that they've been waiting for. They have to seize on this idea of a summer season and it's got to look like um, it has to have a sort of Hollywood Palm Beach feel to it. And so she she gets the casino to to put a lot of uh money and infrastructure into promoting a summer season so they open like you know a tennis club and um they try you know there's no great beachfront there but they they build this huge olympic-sized swimming pool at right at the edge of the ocean Mm -hmm. which none of the which the french you know contractor is so he's totally baffled by this idea that you would want to put a you know a, a pool right at the edge of the ocean but it works and um she really in the 20s um kind of reinvents and rescues this, this ailing resort by, by looking to the States, by looking to people who are along Riviera then like, you know, you know Coco Chanel, of course, but also Fitzgerald and Hemingway and that whole crew, she sees those styles as being important. And, and that that's actually uh, what Monaco has to, has to kind of capitalize upon. Uh, if you go to, if you go to Monte Carlo now, there's a, the Monte Carlo beach hotel, which is this great 1920s um, hotel that was built under her direction. The the jewel of the hotel is this uh, restaurant that overlooks the ocean, and it's called The Elsa. Huh.
1: Um, I really want to go to Monte Carlo <laughs> after reading this book. I had, I'm kind of amazed that I haven't yet. Um, we talked a little bit already, Mark, about the, the kind of dark side of capitalism and poverty and some of these other issues. And I'm just wondering about, you know, crime, violence, uh, other types of dark stories, scandals. I mean, I, I don't want to be no, too no. eager to hear about them, but please tell me the dark stories. Um, but just what role that that dimension of things plays in the in the book?
0: Yeah, here was again a moment where the the idea going in did not align itself with the results of the research, which was so, which is why we do the archival research in the first place. Right. Which is that I had read again and again about um, murders and suicides in monte carlo that that gambling and and because this casino resort uh inevitably bred a a dangerous uh environment Hmm. and uh and so suicide was one of the ones i focused on in trying to get to the archival sources of well how much of that actually happened um because as i said the press at the time is really focused on that so i said well there must be something going on here um all of these stories of spectacular suicide you know people even uh in the illustrated press, pictures, you know, lithographs of of people who had killed themselves right at the tables, you know, with the blood spilling out on the tables in front of this whole crowd. And I said, "Well, okay, let's. What's behind that?" And when I when I looked at, as much as I could into the research, I didn't find that you know any large number of suicides had happened. I, I certainly found that the casino uh, had had some, uh, the security had had some experiences with with people who had either. Uh, committed suicide or threatened suicide and that those were unfortunately kind of not handled in in the most um sensitive way um but were the numbers any larger there than anywhere else that i could not tell conclusively um dominique califat you know a wonderful french uh, cultural historian historian of the press Mm -hmm. pointed me to um to some of the the statistics that durkheim had actually used Mm. uh, in his study of suicide And that said, you know, there's actual hard numbers for the area of how many people kill themselves and and why, according to how it was recorded by the police, the authorities at the time. And so while I did not have Monaco itself statistically to look at, I had all of the surrounding French uh, areas. Hmm. Uh, And, of course, people in all of these stories about people killing themselves because of ruin in Monte Carlo, most of them took place on French soil because people were staying, you know – the place itself is rather small, so people were staying in Nice. so I, I kind of I, I I drew out of that and, and and you know i I wouldn't say that this is in any way definitive, but based on those statistics in the surrounding area, i didn't see any huge spike mm-hmm. um, that would lead you to believe that that the stories in any way match the reality and so again, the point there was, well, why the stories and as I mentioned before, I think it is this idea of a place, a resort setting. And a place where uh, that is so um, where, where financial transactions take such prevalence uh, and where entertainment is so is so kind of uh, all-encompassing um, is inherently threatening to the bonds of uh, nationhood to the bonds of community to the bonds of, of of cooperation and so it must be demonized and demonized in a certain way.
1: You end the book, Mark. Uh, you know, around the period of the, the first Monaco Grand Prix, which is in the late 20s. So t- is it 1929 that the first uh, Grand Prix uh, takes place? So you mentioned this uh, issue with the archives and the Second World War uh, as being one of the reasons why uh, you didn't, you know, go further than, than in you know, into the later 30s or into the period of the Second World War. But I'm I'm curious about the choice to end the book where you do, um, and apart from the archival consideration, if there is anything apart from the archival consideration, how you think about the package here in terms of periodization from the early 19th century to to the end of the 1920s and to, you know, arrival in the 30s, what what effect do you think that has in terms of the arc of the story, and, you know, what's the afterlife of Monte Carlo? Um, that if you had had access maybe to some, some of the years after this, what, what would you have wanted to follow up on?
0: So one of the things I hear again, you know, people who either I know or in reviews or just kind of discussing this, um, I hear again and again, yeah, we love the book. It's great. It's awesome. And then it just ends so abruptly in <laughs> 1929. What's up with this ending? Uh, why didn't you keep going? Or Are you going write, to write a sequel or, you know, a second volume or whatever? And it was a very conscious choice to end precisely with that moment of the first Grand Prix, mm-hmm. which is preceded by this tremendous um, worker uprising that gets quashed. Mm-hmm. And what I, because the story is about um, this, this, dynasty, this history of the dynasty of the Blancs, not of the Grimaldi, but actually of this business um, thriving in an age when it is really the gambling center of the world – and where it really is, I think, a, a key crucible in this cosmopolitan culture of, of people um, who are coming to a place and celebrating their escape from um, a kind of gambling prohibitions. And what happens by, by the late 20s is that everyone else is catching on. So by 1931, France allows roulette, which had been this this total no-no. They, they legalized gambling Early in the 20th century, uh, largely in part because of Monaco's financial success and people along the Côte d'Azur kind of complaining, well, why can't we do that as well? But they'd never allowed roulette because that was seen as particularly insidious and, and addictive and all the rest. By 31, it gets, it gets, uh, it gets legalized. And by the forties, you have Nevada and, um, that the preeminence of, of Monaco is not as interesting. Yes, the Grimaldi story continues, but to me that's not as interesting as the business story because it sort of yields to this other, it becomes a global phenomenon. And right. so, um, you know, there's a lot that can be said. And I've, I've written in other uh, places about present-day Monaco and about the tax haven. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not necessarily in the book. The book is about is, is a, in some ways a prehistory of this whole era of Monaco as a tax, as a tax shelter. Um, but what I'm trying to say is with this history that focuses on the casino is that it's not coincidental that the place that starts out as the first true casino resort in the world, the modern casino resort should also house the world's first, uh, modern tax shelter. Mm. Monaco, you know, after the second world war really becomes this place where people can, um, park their money in, in, in kind of put ways that, that it can't be found. And I think that is not coincidental. I think that is the continuation of the culture of um, if you have the money to do so, you can act in a way that is antithetical to the laws of your home nation. So Mm -hmm. first it starts with gambling. And then it is this idea of hiding your money from uh, tax authorities and moving it somewhere else, which should be seen as really treasonous if you think about it. Mm -hmm. And yet we get to the point where we've had uh, presidential candidates, and not just in this election, but in, rec- in in past elections, I think of Mitt Romney, who speak rather openly about having money offshore. Yeah, and that's not seen as something that's horrible. It's actually well, no, that's smart. That's what you, you. do. <laughs> that's what you do if you are if you are shrewd enough and wealthy enough to have those kinds of tax problems. You know, why not uh, just park it somewhere else? And that's okay. That's acceptable. Wow. I think that yeah. comes out of this whole culture of. Uh, you know, in certain places and among certain levels of wealth, uh, it doesn't really matter what your nominal home nation is.
1: Mark, there are so many other questions I'd like to ask you, but I'm going to stop at just one, which is what are you, what are you working on now?
0: Uh, I am actually writing a book about Napoleon's exile on Elba, which is a weird, weird, (laughs) weird weird jump. Uh, I've not, uh, it's going backwards a little bit because this is 1814, so a little bit out of my comfort zone, era-wise. But and I've kind of it's something that's been kicking around in my head for for years, and I, and I'm trying to make the link. Well, why why did I go from this project to Napoleon? <laughs> and I think it's actually what interests me about that that period, which is where he's he's an ex- exile and then he escapes, uh, is the actual island of Elba itself. I think that what I'm trying to do with all of my projects is say that these little small places um, that somehow and sometimes get overlooked by historians um, can sometimes play very key roles Mm -hmm. in in history and so my point with monaco is it trades precisely on its tiny size to become incredibly wealthy um, because it it can do things that larger nations can't it can set the people there can set laws that that are harder to set in larger nations, and so I'm interested to see what what the Napoleonic experience on Elba, with this tiny little island, plays in his whole career and his whole, um, you know, ultimately um, disastrous return with with Waterloo. So that's what I'm working on now.
1: That sounds pretty exciting. Maybe you should be writing at some point. You know, the the small square kilometer methodology. Because <laughs> <Right. laughs> it does sound like a theme that runs throughout, uh, you know, some of your interests. Mark, I just want to thank you so much for speaking with me and for writing the book.
0: Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure.